Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to a new episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the broader field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. Jonathan Brown's Islam and Blackness is a thorough and thoroughly riveting study of the tensions and conceptions of blackness in Muslim intellectual traditions and social histories, pre-modern and modern, in a variety of contexts. At once deeply reflective, philologically majestic, and theoretically productive, Islam and Blackness engages and examines a range of texts from a wide expanse of scholarly genres to show that the question whether Islam is anti-black is immensely complicated and naughty. Unafraid to pose and address difficult and provocative questions on issues of race, class, and difference in Islamic thought, this book not only represents a profound meditation on Islam and blackness, but also a painstakingly researched presentation of the depth and complexity of Muslim scholarly traditions and debates. The ethical perceptiveness of this book competes fiercely with the clarity of its purpose um, and the clarity of its prose, and the intellectual come political significance of its argument. Here now is my conversation with Professor Jonathan Brown. Uh, Hello, Jack. Thank you so much uh, for your time and for speaking to us on New Books in Islamic Studies, uh, which operates online through the New Books Network. We are discussing your latest uh, uh, and phenomenal um, book, Islam and uh, Blackness. Um, So, um, I think what we'll do with this book, since it is a mesmerizingly layered uh, book, and it's really an experience I would recommend all listeners to read this book from the beginning to the end. Uh, it, the, the, the treasure trove of analysis, information, uh, ethical discussions uh, is just staggering. It's, it's, it's quite an experience. So I thought maybe to begin with, uh, before we get into some aspects of this book, and you, you talk about this in the book early on, what got you to write this book. Could you share with our listeners that, that story about what something you encountered and that led you to write this book and how it sort of perhaps builds on, but also departs from your last uh, book on Islam and slavery? Uh, yeah, well, uh, Shirley, thank you. I mean, I, I should thank you for your time, considering you spent God knows how long uh, reading, the, reading the book. Um, and that's very generous of you. And the the older I get, the more I realize that, you know, we, it's uh, not so much that we should expect other people to listen to what we have to say, but that it's really a privilege that somebody will take their time to, you know, think, think about your work and, and take it seriously. So I, I really appreciate it. I mean that in a sincere way. Um, yeah. Uh, so this book was, uh, you know, I remember, so I was, I wrote that book, Islam and slavery or slavery and Islam. And, um, you know, someone was like, oh, you should write a book on, you know, race and Islam or something. I was like, I'm not crazy. I'm not going to do that. Um, and I meant that. I, I, I didn't intend to, to write this book. Uh, but in some ways, I think it was like maybe latent. There was some interest left over from the previous book because there was a story. I actually end the, I think, the last appendix of the Slavery and Islam book on which is I translate the story of this um, 8th century Basran saint. Uh, a, uh, he's a, 
black African saint. We don't know his name. And uh, the, kind of the, the, the last scene of the, in the story is that the saint dies and his sort of disciples look at him and the, the blackness vanishes from his face and his face looks like the moon. So in, on the one hand, you have this incredibly moving story where, long story short, these the, the leading scholars of the city basically make themselves, you know, subordinate themselves to this black slave because they realize that he's like the true saint of God in the city, uh, the true friend of God in the city, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so you have this incredible, um, you know, story about how piety and devotion to God and commitment to truth uh, kind of transcends all you know, social um, hierarchies. On the other hand, you, you have this story where at the end, whatever the case may be, blackness is something that it should, it should be wished away, right? It's sort of like a bad thing that, that someone who's good, like that the goodness is sort of revealed by the blackness disappearing. So I was like, that's a, that's like a really weird story. Um, that part is really weird. And I was, that kind of lingered with me, but I probably would never have done anything about it. I just would have consigned it to, you know, some corner of my mind but what really made me write this book uh well actually it, i didn't even intend to write the book when i did this but was in the summer of 2020 i think yeah so that was uh no 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 was that the summer of covid covid was happening then right i can't remember that's right, that's right yeah. yeah i think it was summer of 2020 right so uh there was this debate on a listserv academic listserv called Re uh, research africa which I'm not on, not, not that I have anything against it. I just am not, I don't happen to be on it. Um, but uh, I kept getting emails about this. People, people kept asking me questions about stuff that was happening in this debate. And the debate was about uh, this one scholar uh, named, I think, Moses Achunu from um, Vanderbilt University, a historian. Uh, and he was arguing what is evidently, I didn't know about this, like an actual academic position, Namely, that Islam at a scriptural level, right? So Islam at like the level of the Quran and the Sunnah of the Prophet is sort of theologically and ontologically anti-black. Um, and so people were sending me messages like this, this, this you know, he's, the guy's brought up this hadith and he's using this hadith as, a, as evidence and you know how to address it. And I kept getting these emails and I was like, oh, you know, this is interesting. I'll try and look into it. And I kind of made some short replies and I just put them aside and didn't think about it. And then a few months later, I was just, you know, I really should, I said to myself, I really should answer these questions more thoroughly. And so I started looking into it. Uh, one thing led to another. In order to understand one question, I had to answer another one. In order to answer that, I had to answer another one, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And before long, I was working on a much bigger project. And then I just sort of worked obsessively on it until I didn't, until it was a book. And that was how the book came about. So it was really a response to that debate. One of the key themes that runs throughout the book, but one that you spend especially the first half on um, extensively, is this disconnect between modern concepts um, and categories and also the modern state, and then pre-modern discourses and the context of Muslim imperial sovereignty from where many of these discourses come from. Uh, so, you know, concepts like racism, what racialization etc and you spend a lot of time i think this book is really helpful for just as an uh you know an uh, introduction and perhaps more than an introduction on some key debates happening in race studies today or on on this category of race but i wanted you to speak 
about this key theme that you especially spend a lot of time at the beginning of the book about how do you reflect on a past using these very modern categories of blackness, race, etc. This 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 um, uh, uh, problem or conundrum that goes throughout the book, but especially you spend a lot of time in the in the first half on on this conundrum. Could you speak a bit about how you wrestled with this problem of modern categories, pre-modern texts, modern states, pre-modern empires, and so on? Um, with great difficulty, I guess that's the that's the only way to answer it. I mean, in some so in some. You know, I guess you could divide this book into kind of two parts or two aspects in one sense. One is um, a review of existing scholarship on these questions, especially on uh, there's a chapter, I think, on I call it background on, on race and racism, where I just sort of summarize some of the debates about uh, uh, race and racism and uh, sort of scholarly debates. And in a lot of ways, that was in some ways it's because I, I when I write books, I like to I like a book to be kind of a one stop shop shopping, you know, where you can go and pick this book up and it won't assume that you know anything. It won't assume you have any background. So it'll take you through whatever, everything you need to know in order to, dis, to discuss a topic or to answer a, a set of questions in this case about Islam and blackness. Uh, so I had this chapter on, on race and racism. You know, some of the debates like um, when does the idea of race emerge? Is it a kind of medieval or a modern concept? Uh, is race real or social construct, this debate? Um, what does it mean to be racism? How do you define when someone's racist? These things. So I think these are kind of, and I, I kind of give the main schools of thought on this. Um, I'm not, you know, qualified to um, to weigh in in any meaningful way. Uh, but what you can see uh, in these debates is exactly what you're discussing, which is really how kind of tortuous and agonistic it is for people to, who, to, to ask these questions and try to answer them in a world in which uh, race and racism are, are so definitive and dominant uh, that it's, it's, it's really hard to be able to talk about the past without imposing your views on it or sort of the, the importance of race and racism today on the past. On the other hand, you, you know, sometimes when people, uh, you know, sort of try to, to push back against that and say that we don't want to impose uh, ourselves on the past, then you end up kind of making the opposite mistake, which is that you ignore elements in the past that are, you know, maybe, were continuities into the present on, on things like race and identity and the, the role of the body and um, phenotype and, and how we judge one another. So it's it's like a it's sort of agonizing and and sometimes and scholars will point this out, which is that like sometimes, you know, these debates go back and forth so much that terms kind of lose their meaning. Um, where, you know, you'll you'll say that, uh, well, you know, uh, Aristotle talked about you know, certain people looking a certain way or having a certain character genetically or kind of in terms of their descent from a community or their, or their nation. And, and so that's like race. And therefore, because it's involved in notions of judgment and justification, that it's sort of racism. And, uh, and then other scholars will be like, look, you know, these, or, or people will say, well, you know, um, uh, race is not just about the body. It's just about, kind of creation of indelible, inalterable categories in a power dynamic. 
and therefore, you know, a Mus- Muslims can, you know, Muslim can be a race, uh, uh, Christian can be a race, right? Uh, that it, it's sort of something that's not really just about your body anymore. And then a lot of people will say, well, if that's what you're, the claim you're making, then why do we talk about race and not just other types of, of chauvinism or bigotry or something like that, right? So what, what makes race and racism special? So you see like these these terms get argued about so much that sometimes they, they almost kind of uh, just evaporate or come apart. Um, and, and you, and it's not because people are, um, I don't know. It's not because they're being pedantic or because they're being, uh, you know, light, light, uh, super superficial about it. It's mo- it's more that there's, they care so much and there's so much, uh, there's so much at stake that, you know, it, it just, um, it just drives these debates into like, um, I don't know how to how to express it. It just sort of it just sort of drives them over and over and over again over the same ground, and uh, people are kind of loath to surrender ground because of what they think it means in terms of its implications for for modern moral judgments. So it's really hard to do, and it's uh, it requires a lot of. Um, I mean, it, from a scholar, it requires a lot. From a reader, it requires a lot. Right? It requires the the scholar and the reader to really be willing to step outside things in their own world that uh, are almost unavoidable, you know, or or a kind of unsurpassable. So, but I, you know, and I think at some points in the book, I almost say that about a few issues. I'll say like, you know, if, if we're going to think about, I I think it's maybe the one point in the book where I actually, try to say like is a specific thing anti-black or not and um i basically say like it really depends kind of how far how charitable you're willing to be and how kind of how far you're willing to step away from current discussions around this and i say like if you consider this type of statement to be anti-black then you know it is anti-black if you if you're willing to look past that then it isn't it isn't anti-black so it's it's really almost how much the the reader is willing to give on some of these topics Another key category that you critique uh, in the early part of the book uh, as you're trying to really destabilize um, some of the commonplace uh, ways in which the question of slavery is talked about in relation to, um, you know, Arab uh, slave um, uh, trade, etc. One key category that perhaps brings this whole discussion together is what you call um, Arab Islamic slavery, and you show the kind of confluence of discourses, ranging from Orientalism to um, Afrocentricism, that have gone into the making of this category Arab Islamic slavery, and you do a masterful job of critiquing this and and really showing that this whole narrative of there being some kind of a opposition between the Arab Muslim slaver and the Black African slave that this kind of a neat um, narrative of putting these two categories this neatly is very problematic. Um, could you tell us a bit about, you know, what are the different forms of discourses that have gone into the making of this idea of Arab Islamic slavery? And why is this so problematic, this idea of just uh, uh, juxtaposing and neatly separating something called the Arab Muslim slaver and the black African slave? Yeah, um, this is a, this was a chapter that i mean i i really i mean i, I say i get it i got into it i mean you people get into every chapter of their books i suppose but i mean I, 
I really felt like I was uncovering a lot of stuff that I couldn't believe I was, you know, coming across. And you, you know, you mentioned this notion of Arab Islamic slavery as like problematic. And I think that's a great way to put it, except that it's, it's not problematic in the sense of, you know, we're sitting in a grad student seminar and we want to complicate a text or something. Uh, I mean, it's problematic in that it's immensely politically problematic today, right? It's, it's really like you see how this infuses and drives and justifies really important policies uh, in the world today, right? It's like, um, so it's very germane. Uh, of course, people have done uh, very good work on this in a, from a couple of angles already, probably in terms of just this notion of the Arabic Islamic slave trade, uh, uh, Dalia Gubara's article on this and Nathaniel Matthews uh, has written on this. Um, of course, Ali Mazrui, Rahimahullah, the late Ali Mazrui, he, he really kind of uh, laid the field out, I think, in terms of challenging these ideas. Um, but uh, what I did, I think, in this chapter, which was a contribution, was to look at where these, the kind of, what are the, the, feed, the streams that feed into the current discourse around the idea that the, you know, Muslim slash Arab slash Islam are these, you know, that Muslim slash Arab slash Islam is an anti-Black slaving thing, right? And that it's a kind of a predatory colonial presence in the quote-unquote real uh, Black Africa, right? Um, and uh, it's it's very interesting to see where this comes from. I mean, it's really fascinating because it, part of it goes back to like the 1500s and the, the idea of the 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 Barbary uh, slave trade, right? The idea that the Barbary pirates, that, the, that British and French and Irish and American and Italian sailors and seafarers are terrified for several centuries, justifiably terrified of being captured by Muslim pirates operating off the coasts of today, what's today, you know, Morocco and Algeria and Tunisia. Um, and but the, the, what's interesting about this is it, is it becomes a genre of writing. So you get people who write about their experience in captivity, um, uh, uh, kind of in, in places like Algiers, right? British or Irish or Americans. And, um, but then by the time you get to the early 1700s, the power dynamic is really changed where by that time, because of the kind of power of the Royal Navy and things like that, uh, not now the Bar Barbary pirates have mainly been cowed. And in fact, at that point, in, until the late 1800s, the real danger is actually t to Muslim vessels being captured and enslaved by, um, by European ships. And, you know, they're, they're Muslims from North Africa being taken as captives and slaves to be sold in Italian ports like uh, Naples and Genoa into the late 1800s. So wait, wait I mean, while people are debating abolition and stuff like that in uh, Brazil, there's like Muslims being brought and sold as slaves on the you know coasts of, of, of in, in Italian markets. But what I think it's really what's important to in, in this case is that what starts out as a real fear and a re, and a reality kind of morphs into a um, a kind of a, a genre, a cultural genre, where the, the the writing about your captivity and the fear of the Barbary Muslim Moorish slaver, right? Which always has a couple of things. Like there's a fear of the there's the Moor who is sometimes black, sometimes uh, swarthy Arab, 
And then sometimes the, the Moorish slavery will have put like a black, you know, they'll say like a Negro um, slave in charge of the white slave. So like there's this, you can see that as, um, uh, as kind of British and American and, and, and Europeans are dealing with their own racialization of slavery in the new world, they're kind of uh, uh, projecting some of their anxieties about the fear of rebellion, the fear of being kind of at, at the mercy of black, the black African slave in their stories about bar- a Barbary captivity. And a, a scholar named uh, Paul Bapler wrote some really good things on this, including an article and then a collection of writings he, he did on this, a collection of edited stories. But uh what happens is that that really kind of takes on a life of its own and you get these for centuries, you know, flying off the presses of France and Britain and the United States stories of Barbary captivity, some of which are completely made up. Like there are especially stories of women being captured. And of course, then you have the anxiety of your woman, the white woman who is being dominated by the kind of black or brown, more or African Arab Muslim and uh, all the anxieties you can imagine around that. There's a huge anxiety of men being sodomized by the Moor or the, the African or the Muslim. And then this continues into, you know, pulp novels in the late 19th century and the 20th century into board games. And then, of course, into one of the main film genres of early Hollywood, really into kind of um, the mid 20th century of the Sheikh movie, of the movie where uh, one of the main genres in Hollywood was the uh, white man or white woman or both getting uh, captured by uh, the, the kind of sheikh, the Arab slash swarthy um, person who's both alluring and terrifying. Uh, and then, um, so you have this idea of the of the Muslim North African as slaver. Then what happens is a, a sort of parallel track beginning in the early to mid 19th century as the kind of abolition movement in Britain and the United States is successful in really uh, either limiting, ending, or demonizing the Atlantic slave trade, that they they switch to everything. They say everything else in Africa is the Mohammedan slave trade. So this divides slavery in the world basically into the kind of Christian slave trade, which is say was never Christian. It's a misnomer. We've ended it. We're wrong, et cetera, et cetera. Um, now there's just the Mohammedan slave trade. And so everything in Africa that remains in terms of slavery is just conceptualized as the Mohammedan slave trade, which, of course, it isn't, right? There's all sorts of non-Muslims in Africa engaging in slavery, including Christians in Ethiopia in the late 19th century and early 20th century. But that's not uh, neither here nor there, right? But the, the, then you have this, um, this idea of the heroic Europeans who are going and saving the black natives, the sort of noble black, childish uh, dancing natives from the evil, evil Muslim Arab outsiders who are trying to enslave them. And this you see in the, and this I thought was really interesting because I didn't realize this, like the whole Tarzan, you know, Edward, Edward Wright, Rice, Edgar Wright's Rice Burroughs novels and movies, and some of the earliest movies that are made, feature films, are Tarzan movies, are actually, Tarzan, the reason Tarzan's family is in Africa is to stop, help stop Arabs enslaving uh, black Africans. And then, like, so there's just this whole um, this drama of the white Europeans going and saving the black Africans from the evil Arabs who are now enslaving them. Now, then what happens is this gets uh, 
caught onto by different kind of political and cultural movements in particularly the United States. One is uh, Afrocentrism, which kind of comes out of black nationalist movements, black nationalist movements like, you know, the back, what black nationalism does is uh, in the 19th and 20th century is to, uh, it's a sort of way in which diaspora black communities in, let's say the Caribbean or North America, uh, conceptualize a sense of identity and meaning and hope by locking onto a moment in a kind of fantastic, real or imagined brilliant African past, right? Um, whether it's like, uh, you know, Ethiopia or the kind of, uh, in the case of Nation of Islam and the Moorish Science Temple, like kind of the the black, North African, black Islam, right? African Islam. And kind of seeing that as their their, their place of belonging. And uh, what happens is, it, it, uh, so one one aspect of this is, while those groups like the Nation of Islam War Science Temple, for example, will like find meaning in African Islam, uh, another uh, kind of movement that emerges in the mid, uh, early to mid 20th century in the, in, uh, the United States, <laughs> kind of takes the exact opposite approach, which is it sees, it it it, it um, adopts and identifies with this notion of Islam and Arabs as outsiders who are oppressing Black Africans. And uh, this you see, you, you see it a little bit, um, a little bit with W.E.B. Du Bois sort of alludes to it. Uh, you see it a lot more in uh, the writings, maybe crystallizes most in the writings of Chancellor Williams. In 1971, he writes a book called uh, The Destruction of Black Civilization. And then um, he's a professor, a history professor. And then uh, again, John Henrik Clarkson kind of takes over this mantle. And uh, what, what this Afrocentric idea says is that, you know, um, first of all, civilization, human civilization kind of originates or in Africa. They sort of... Uh, and you see this in the writings of people like uh, Sheikh Anta Diop in you know francophone writing the Sen- Senegalese polymath whose writing is translated in, later into English, uh, where you know the idea that kind of Egypt is not a Mediterranean sort of ancient Egypt and its brilliance is not a Mediterranean or um, Semitic or kind of white or um, Arab or whatever you know not kind of a European or, or Asian expression it's like an African. A power, and it, it's part of an African heritage, which continues to influence Africa um, for many centuries. Um, wh- now, while for someone like Diop, sees that brilliance continue into things like the Islamic scholarship of Timbuktu and the medrasas of Senegal, right? He sees that as African. This Afrocentric view of people like Chancellor Williams sees Islam as. Uh, an occupying outside force. So it, it in some ways, it, it uh, centrism in the United States is in, is allied ideologically with the notion of that idea of kind of the European idea of Islam and Muslims as slavers and as uh, victimizing the, the 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 
wonderful, innocent black Africans. Uh, so someone like Chancellor Williams and that Afrocentric view is an ally of that because what it says is yes, like uh, just uh, the the um, the Arabs colonized and the Muslims colonized Africa just like the Europeans did. In fact, what they did was even worse, right? And this is where you get the idea that the kind of Arab Islamic slave trade, quote unquote, is was worse and more destructive to Africa than the European slave trade. And you can see why this is useful to kind of um, partisans or you know people who believe in the, the the moral leadership of the West, if you're European or American, because what this does is it, it sort of shifts the blame. It creates another um, antagonist, another kind of evildoer in the shape of the Arab Muslim slaver. And it makes them even more guilty of the crimes of violating Africa. And unlike alleged, you know, unlike the Europeans who repented and the Americans who repented for this, allegedly the, the Muslims have not done this and continue to do it. Right. So, uh, now, then, so this uh, this kind of Chancellor Williams Afrocentrism then is also very useful to kind of political conservatives in America and in, in Europe because they also get on this idea of uh, we're not, you know, it's not really a, the West that's guilty of the crime of slavery. Yes, we did it, but we were wrong. And Muslims have done it way worse, and they never said they never apologized. Um, and then what's I thought was most shocking, I mean, it's sort of not shocking in the end, but I was surprised to see how clear the links are, was how this whole narrative is then adopted by uh, pro-Israel public diplomacy. So in Israel and American supporters of Israel, um, you know, uh, engaging Hasbara. Hasbara is uh, Hebrew for pro, essentially pro-Israel public diplomacy. It's not a, it's not like a conspiratorial term, conspiratorial term. I mean, this is used by people who engage in this, they, they use this term, Hasbara. Uh, so you see how the through things like funding films, through things like uh, political uh, advocacy, um, think tanks, uh, uh, pro-Israel groups in the United States and in Israel will uh, build on and spin and foment this idea of Arabs are anti-Black, Arabs are slavers in Africa, because it one breaks possibility and prevents third world or global south or kind of colonized people solidarity against. So it, it prevents Africans and Arabs, right, essentially from having solidarity because uh, kind of this narrative says that uh, Arabs are predatory and Muslims are predatory towards Africans. And the second thing is, is it, what it says is that it's not. It's not the Israelis. It's not. It's not Zionism that's racist towards uh, anybody. It's actually Arabs and Muslims who are, re who are the real racists and kind of unrepentant racists. So uh, that's what I thought was really interesting in this chapter. And I mean, one thing that really just it's done to me. Um, you know, this guy uh, Charles Jacobs, uh, who who is this very active as American. You know, abolitionists, he started a group called American Anti-Slavery Group in, I think, in the 1990s. And uh, he would do all this work, you know, fighting slavery in in South Sudan during the Sudanese Civil War. Uh, this is the same guy who started this group called Camera, I think, Center for Accuracy in Middle East Reporting, which is a, it's a group that essentially just, go, I mean, doesn't essentially, it goes after 
anybody in the American ac academy or media who criticizes Israel, right? So it's an incredibly aggressive Zionist organization uh, that aims to basically cow any criticism of Israel in the public sphere in the United States. It did, for example, it funded the movie that um, about um, Joseph Mossad in Columbia University. And I saw that that summer, I think it was summer of 2021, he gave, Charles Jacobs gave a, a, a presentation and in it, he, he's talking about his anti-slavery work, but he, he, he directly conflates the cause of slavery in the modern world with Islam. He says everywhere in the world that there is slavery, it's done by Muslims and everywhere in the world, slavery, it's Muslims enslaving black people. Right. So he, you see like this, the, the, the strand, the consistent thread of this person's career is pro-Israel activism, aggressive uh, attacks on anybody who criticizes Israel or Israeli policies. And, he, and that's the, the central thread in his career. But his main activities in the last three decades have been abolitionism. But that abolition is only focused on is in which uh, there's slavery between Arabs slash Muslims and black people. And he uses this to conflate completely the idea of, you know, slavery with Islam and slaves with black Africans being enslaved by Muslims. So this was uh, really interesting to me. Hmm. Terrific. Now, one of the key themes that uh, comes up repeatedly in the book uh, is this idea, we will come to the Quran and Hadith and your discussion of legal traditions and Sufi traditions in a moment, uh, but you constantly talk about this idea of black not corresponding to a phenotype um, in Islam and Islamic thought. Um, so, hence this idea of anti-blackness is perhaps anachronistic. But, you know, you also show in the book early on that there are certain Near Eastern traditions or the influence of Galen and other Greco-Roman traditions because of which there were ideas such as climate influencing, uh, you know, uh, uh, a person's temperament and uh, features and how that comes through in uh, authoritative sources of Islamic thought such as Ibn Khaldun's thought, etc. So can you talk about this tension that you capture uh, early on, before you even come to the Quran and Hadith, about this idea of black not exactly corresponding to a phenotype, but yet these notions of blackness corresponding to certain kinds of human traits still being there uh, in Muslim intellectual discourses. Yeah, I, I mean, this is, oh boy, this is complicated. Um, so, and this is, a lot of this is well studied, so I'm not claiming to have, you know, um, discovered all this, right? Um, this has been discussed by scholars in several fields. Um, one is that uh, the, the idea that, uh, well, first of all, the, the idea that people from outside of sub-Saharan Africa, Africa, South Sahara, that there's a conception of what people look like, of a certain kind of black phenotype, this goes back a very, very long time. I mean, essentially as early as we have early complex societies like ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia, we have them depicting people who come from Africa, South Sahara, and their depictions are today, you know, you, you would look at them and it would you say, oh, this is obviously someone from Africa, South Sahara, right? So you have, and this is true in Gre Greek 
art and Roman art and ancient Egyptian art, and Mesopotamian art, et cetera, et cetera. It's true in, you know, Tang and Sung China in their descriptions of people that they consider to be African, some of whom are African or some of whom are actually from Southeast Asia. They just conflate all this group together or they kind of um, uh, consider it one group. But uh, what's really interesting is there's there's really a very stable image of what a black African looks like, whether you're in Egypt or in Rome or in China or in you know Iraq or in Jerusalem, whatever, right? In in the kind of ancient to um, to kind of late antique period. Uh, now, I mean, and and by the way, th- there's so many interesting <laughs> things we could discuss. Like, and I, I talk about this in my book, which is, for example, why. You know, why would somebody, um, person with black ink, I mean, I've never, I've never met anybody who actually has black skin, right? Uh, I've never actually met anyone who has white skin, right? But so why are we, why are ancient Egyptian, ancient Egyptian artists, for example, painting people from Nubia in black ink and people from Syria in essentially ivory, almost white ink? And then painting themselves in red ochre ink. I mean, did they not have other colors? Like, why? Why did? Why did somebody decide to call people black or white? Red. I mean, these are very weird questions if you think about it. Um, and there's a, you know, I don't know if there's actually a real answer for this. I give some theories, but I don't know. So it's amazing how some really huge questions. Uh, how, how some you know we don't seem to to stop to think about them a lot, and then when we do, we actually can't find an answer because it's, it's impossible for us to answer them, or we don't have the information. But uh, yeah, so what what's interesting is that you I'm more pertinent to, to what you asked is that you have uh, you know in the kind of Greco-Roman world very clear understandings of uh why people look different it has to do with climate it has to do with their humors right kind of galenic and uh, environmental ideas uh and you have this idea that the kind of middle area the kind of mediterranean world into the sort of middle east is the moderate environment and therefore that's where you get people with the best features um and the best temperaments and the further you go away from that either to north or to the south you get you know, you kind of move into immoderation and therefore into away from virtue into vice. So uh, you have the idea of the kind of African as hot, emotional, sexual, macrophilic, uh, macrophallic, sorry. You get the idea of the Northern European as drunk, irrational, stupid, big, blonde haired, always, you know, fighting, right? Um, but you also have these groups also have their virtues. So the, the Northern European might be stupid and drunk, but he's also very brave. The uh, African might be um, kind of emotional and hot, but they're also quick-witted and, and, and wise. Uh, now, what, what happens then is when you combine this kind of Greco-Roman tradition with the biblical tradition is you get uh, two things. One, you have by really the 500s of the common era, whether it's in the right in the Old Testament book of Genesis or in the writings of church fathers like St. Augustine or is it um, or St. Jerome or Origen or in um, the 
Babylonian Talmud and Palestinian Talmud, you have essentially the idea of known as the curse of Ham idea, the idea that uh, um, Noah's son Ham dishonored his father and therefore God cursed Ham's descendants to be slaves to his brethren um, and or made them black and that those descendants inhabit Africa, right? So you get the idea that you kind of take these two ideas, you get the idea of the black African is sort of sexual, appetitive, hot, sinful, boiling in sin, uh, condemned to slavery, condemned to blackness, right? Uh, and to and to serve the more moderate, more perfect Christian Semitic European uh, Mediterranean world, right? And you see this, you, you you know, and Muslims inherit this, by the way, right? So I'm not. I, this is all part of the tradition that Muslims inherit. And then the the, the third aspect, which and this is, I think, very important uh, in distinguishing, I think, some other traditions from the Islamic tradition, which is in the early Christian tradition, you have a very clear mixing. It, it, they blend completely the idea of the Black African phenotype and sin. Blackness of skin and blackness of sin are mixed together very quickly, really by the second century, third century of the common era. And that will exist in the Western, in kind of Western Christian tradition. To the extent that, you you know, there's a story in the Acts of the Apostles of um, the, what's called the baptism of an Ethiop, the Ethiopian. So an Ethiopian comes to, to, to the apostles, I think it's usually Philip, and he's baptized and sort of immersed in water and he comes out uh you know in some early text sort of luminous and bright and you could think of that as the kind of luminosity of faith and the brightness of faith but it's also very clearly phrased in whiteness and what you see in medieval european art is that he comes out looking not like you know a guy from palestine but looking like a almost cherubic white european uh and that person, that idea is really influential in the Western Christian tradition. Now, Islamic tradition inherits all of this. Uh, it inherits the notion of the curse of Ham. It inherits everything we just discussed, uh, with a few exceptions. One is that very, although the curse of Ham idea is widely parroted and kind of very neatly packaged in the Islamic tradition, and is upheld by many, many, many Muslim scholars. Major Muslim scholars like Ibn al Jozi died 1200, like uh, Ibn Khaldun died, you know, 1405, 1406, like uh, uh, Sayyuti Jalal al-Din Sayyuti died 1505, like um, uh, other figures, uh, Damascus in the 1300s. They completely reject the curse of Ham idea. They say this is uh, scripturally inauthentic. This violates the contradicts the the hadiths that we consider authoritative on how human beings got their different phenotypes, and also they say it goes against what we consider to be the scientific understanding of phenotype, which is environmental. So, both from like a scriptural kind of Islamic criticism perspective, and also from a kind of um, pre-modern uh, 
Near Eastern scientific tradition. They reject the notion of the Kosher ham. But the second thing, which is more specific, specifically what you asked about, which is very, very important and also very subtle, is that Islamic tradition at a scholarly level is generally, and I say generally because there are some exceptions, the Sufi tradition being one of them, the Islamic legal and ethical traditions are very clear in distinguishing blackness as phenotype from blackness as sin. So metaphorical blackness and physical blackness are clearly delineated. To the and, and a great example of this is in the case of the Quranic uh, phrases that talk, for example, about how on the day of judgment, you know, uh, this will be day yom tabiyadu wujuh wa taswadu wujuh, right? So on the day of judgment, faces will be whitened and faces will be blackened. And, you know, the faces of the believers will be white and the faces of the unbelievers will be blackened. And, you know, Muslim exegetes are very clear. This is not about look in this world. This is not about being kind of European or Arab looking versus being African looking. This is unrelated to phenotype in this world. Absolutely unrelated. And when you get, and this is true for Arab scholars and Persian scholars writing. It's true for African, West African scholars writing in the um, 1800s and the 1900s and the 20th century when they do discussions of these ayahs, these verses of the Quran. And just an, another example, which someone sent me the other day, which I didn't did not include in my book, which I found very interesting, is it talks about Bulbar, uh, who's a scholar from Lisbon who dies in uh, 1070 of the Common Era. He talks about how um, when you die, when you're washing a body, the face will oftentimes turn dark, like blacken. And he says, this has nothing, this is just about uh, blood pooling in the body. It has nothing to do with sin, right? So there's this, you know, repeated and insistent uh, distinction between metaphorical whiteness and blackness in terms of whiteness as nobility, blackness in terms of ignobility, and whiteness and blackness in our phenotype in this world. Hmm. Wonderful. Um you've already started to touch on this uh, but the next theme I wanted to talk about was uh, which I, it really is the bulk of the book uh, in talking about how blackness is represented in the Quran or Hadith traditions and then you go into Sufi traditions and then on the legal traditions as well you make a very concerted effort throughout these discussions to argue um, and to convince your reader that one ought not to jump to the conclusion that seemingly, you know, anti-black discourses were indeed that anti-black, but instead we should look at the sincerity of these authors, the, um, and not just in a very simplistic way, contextualized discourse according to its own context, uh, but going much beyond that to really reflect on the question of what did these categories mean to the people of that of that world, uh, and to really reflect deeply on the sincerity of purpose behind some of these writings that might be seen problematic uh, f- for you know uh, modern sensibilities, um, and I thought that was a very very interesting and a very important um, kind of an ethical framing as an author that he presented that we ought to take seriously the sincerity of these authors from the pre-modern past. So, with that said, and there are a number of examples that one can talk about. There is 
I, what I would like to do is perhaps have you choose a couple of examples. There is the example of the the raisin uh, hadith. There is you've already talked about the Quran and the question of blackness. There is the whole hadith about the exchange of uh, one slave with two slaves, um, um, and uh, then of course uh, Rumi's meditations that could be seen as uh, you know. Um, anti-black, etc. So I will just have you perhaps choose a couple of your own examples, whatever two examples that you want to choose, and talk about this key theme that, you know, one should not look at these texts from modern expectations of racism. And if that's the only lens with which we will look at the pre-modern past, we will go awry in terms of our readings. Um, so maybe take a couple of examples and show and tell us a bit about how you make this larger argument about taking seriously these texts, these authors, on their own terms and give them the sincerity of purpose as 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 readers yeah i mean i i think i would start by i mean i really i, I think that um i just don't want to get this guys yeah i think that's correct i mean the well first i would say like we really need to watch out for our our own um, motivations and our own assumptions. And I don't mean that in a kind of, you know, we need to be careful scholars or like, you know, almost, uh, pl- you know, pleading the point or something. Uh, I mean that sometimes our suspicions and our desire to cast the past in an evil or kind of racist light, it means that we're just straight up uh, misrepresenting the past. Like we're misreading um, we are uh, mischaracterizing people in the past or even in the present, right? So uh, I give a couple of examples of this in the book where, for example, one scholar is talking about uh, how this Mauritanian scholar who's describing his trip in the, 19, in the mid-20th century from Mauritania by car to eventually the, to Saudi Arabia through essentially the, the, the lands of the Sahel uh, that, that at one point, this scholar, whose name is Muhammad Habib Shankiti, who died in 1973, I think, uh, he he talks about how he sees this group of Africans uh, near Bamako in Mali, and he says that they're sort of they're like cattle, they're blacks, they're like cattle, and they don't really wear a lot of clothing, and I've I've even heard they're cannibals, right? And and the, this the, uh, the author says, like, look at this anti-blackness. And uh, that completely misreads what this person's saying, Shankliti is saying, because it's you're you're not understanding his worldview, right? So when you look at medieval Muslim geographers or early modern Muslim geographers, even let's say scholars of the Sokoto Caliphate in the 18th and 19th centuries in uh, what's now kind of northern Nigeria, they will talk about pagan Africans as naked cannibals they're like animals they're closer to animals than humans the the people writing that are black african they would see themselves as black they would be identified as other people as black other people as black uh they're surrounded by other black african muslims they're not being anti-black they're being anti-pagan right and that's exactly what shankliti is he's an, an heir to that tradition so he does this whole trip through a land of people who he other Muslims, we would all racialize as black, right? 
And he loves the, the Muslims he meet. He says, oh, they're wonderful. Oh, I had this great dinner with this. Oh, I had this wonderful discussion with this person. Oh, they hosted me and they're such nice people. All these people are black Africans and he has nothing but praise for them. Uh, the people he, he characterizes in the way I mentioned earlier are pagans. And, you know, so not to see the world through his eyes, not to read his text with an understanding of how he saw the world, but only to look at it with our suspicions. I think not only, you know, I think it's, it's actually misrepresents the text. Another example, just briefly, is one scholar who's otherwise did a great study, and I, I wouldn't criticize this person for their overall work, but they read this one 11th century uh, Christian doctor from Baghdad, a guy named Ibn Butlan, who died in 1066, and his description of different types of slaves. And uh, what Ibn Butlan is talking about is how if you basically take people from different backgrounds, like a Persian and a, an, an African, and you you kind of have these people breed, interbreed for several generations, you'll no longer have a Persian, you'll no longer have an African, you'll have something else, right? So that, that where people are from, if you say you have a Persian slave, that really only applies for the first generation until this person intermarries with somebody else, right? In this, somehow the scholar asserts in their translation of this text that Ibn Butlan is talking about purifying the black slaves' race by having them mate with Persian slaves. But that's not, I mean, it's it's literally not in the text. It's not there. It's not intimated in the text. It's not literally in the text. So it's just 100% uh, eisegesis, right? Just people inserting their own suspicions into a text. And this happens surprisingly often when scholars today who i think are kind of laudably concerned with you know combating racism and discrimination and things like that but they they're so suspicious of the past and these actors and these you know figures in the past that they really read things into their words that are definitely not there uh okay so um that's i think one important example uh, some of the other cases you mentioned like in the uh, you know, in let's say, um, so it's very interesting. Uh, the 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 raisin headed hadith you mentioned, and this this comes up a, a lot in these kind of discussions about oh, Islam is Islam anti-black or not? And okay, basically the hadith it's in Sahih Bukhari, it's in the major hadith collections. Uh, the the prophet says that you should obey your commander, even if black slave, basically, right? Or it's a mutilated slave. So the idea is, in the context of kind of military, being on military command, but it's understood as meaning kind of, you know, civilian government as well. The idea is, if somebody's in charge, you obey them, even if they're you socially. Your your notion of who's socially better off and, and you know, where on the social ladder is immaterial. You obey the person who's in charge, right? Um, uh, now, one version, which is interesting, it's actually not the most reliable version. And I think there could be a case for kind of dismissing it just in terms of it being a minority version of the Hadith. But one version says, you know, obey uh, obey your commander, even if an African or, or Ethiopian slave whose head is like a raisin. And this, you know, uh, kind of takes the discussion to another level. 
because you had this idea of um, kind of uh, the sort of uh, comparison to food, the idea of um, you know raisins looking kind of raisins like a little fruit. I mean, what what are you trying to say about this? I mean, uh, this kind of thing is really see it as sort of objectifying. You know, it's really objectifying and insulting to people today. And I'm not debating that. I'm just saying that's, you know, people read this today and it's, it's very surprising to a lot of people. Uh, so what I what I thought was interesting about this was to look at how it was viewed over time. So what we what you say, what you see is that if you're looking at commentators and scholars looking at this hadith in like the 900s and 1000s and 1100s in Persian lands and Arab speaking lands in Central Asia, they're very... You know, they're they're just very frank about it. They're like, oh, uh, it's because, you know, a Ethiopian person's skin is dark colored like a raisin, and their hair is really tightly coiled, and kind of looks. It's like the texture of like a the wrinkly texture of a raisin. Like the the texture of the raisin surface is like the texture of their hair. So it's just simply saying, um, you know, uh, they're an Ethiopian who has the color and the hair texture of a raisin. And they don't really get into it beyond that. It's just saying this is a, the prophet is just describing something um, through a simile. And then what happens in the really the, the 1200s onward, again, in kind of the Middle Eastern, Egypt, Syria, Ottoman world, is takes on a, and into South Asia as well, is it takes on a much more pejorative tone. Uh, you from the, the really the time of the 1100s and 1200s, scholars like Anoui, Ibn Hajar al uh other scholars in South Asia, um, uh, like uh, um, what's the guy, Abul Hassan Asindi, who's originally from Sin but but um, dies around 1770, he spends a lot of his life in the Hejaz. They uh, they say that you know, uh, you know, uh, raisins are, their heads are small like raisins because they're stupid. They're kind of um, demeaned. They're sort of denigrated. Uh, they're stupid. You know, they, they're kind of, so you really get like a lot more negativity read into that. And I think that's an, an important change. But what I want to highlight is that the, the first couple of centuries of scholars looking at this are not uh, really seeing it as, they're just seeing it as a, as a form of description. Whereas really after the 1100s and 1200s, you see very clear anti-Black racist ideas permeating the scholarly discussion. Then what I found was interesting was to try and find African scholars about this hadith. And there you see, this what I found is, was very interesting, is you see figures like uh, Osman Don Fodio, died 1817, the founder of the Socorro Caliphate, his son, Muhammad Bello, uh, who died 1837, I think his successor and a noted scholar in his own right, they will cite this hadith, putting versions with the raisin in it, and they just don't, they, they're just using it as an example. They'll write to their commanders in the field and say, remember soldiers, obey your commanders, even if he's an Ethiopian slave whose head looks like a raisin. And there's no, there's no sense of, they, there's no, they're not kind of angsting over this. They're giving no evidence of feeling that, they're being objectified or they're objectifying somebody. Similarly, a, an, an Ethiopian Muslim scholar who wrote a massive com, uh, commentary on Sahih Muslim, I think he died in 20, oh boy, 2019 maybe, Sheikh Muhammad Amin Harari. He's uh, from Ethiopia. 
he wrote a commentary on Sahih Muslim. He wrote a commentary on Sunan of, of Ibn Majah. And he has an extensive discussion of this hadith where he brings together earlier Muslim scholars discussing it and also talks about, you know, um, the place of Ethiopia in the, in the kind of the world of, of Arabia and um, the dawn of Islam. But again, there's no, you get no sense that he in any way feels that this is demeaning to Ethiopians or to himself. So I think that was very interesting. And it raises the question, which is, I mean, I'm not going to tell a reader that this hadith is anti-Black. And I'm not going to tell them what their reactions should be or if they should be offended or not offended. But I think it's very important to say that, you know, scholars who were then and are today racialized as Black by others and by their own societies did not find this hadith to be problematic at all. And I think that's very important to keep in mind. You know, those people's opinion matters. They, they, their opinion is important. Um, the, 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 maybe the other example I would give in terms of, um, you, you mentioned sort of sincerity several times. And I think maybe this is where that idea comes in the, the most, that you really have to um, kind of look at what somebody is trying to do with a story and what it means to them is the, the role of this uh, kind of like the story I started with about the Basran saint in the 700s, um, whose the blackness disappears from his face and he, he looks like the moon. You see a lot of stories like this. You see a lot of them in collections like Hilyat uh, al-Awliya of uh, Abu Nu'aym al-Isbahani, who died 1038. You see it in the Safwat al-Safwa of Ibn al-Jawzi, died 1200. You see it in um, other collections as well. And you see it even in the writings of Jalal din Rumi, who died 1273 in his Masnavi. And what you see over and over again is the same. Uh, there's a black saint, black slave, who kind of has an encounter with the prophet, mystical encounter with the prophet, or who is possessed of true understanding of God's nature, right? Who is a locus of truth and inspiration in this world. And that when this person has that, or when that truth is recognized, the blackness will disappear from them. But this is very important. It doesn't say it disappears from them and they look like, you know, Brad Pitt, or they look like Max Van Sydow, or they look like, you know, a European guy. Their face looks like the moon. And this is really important because you have to you have to think about what the idea of the, the image of the moon does in the Sufi tradition. First of all, it's associated with the Prophet Muhammad, right? The Prophet Muhammad is like the moon. So they are they become a, a prophetic exemplar. They become a kind of someone who is acceded to uh, the path of the prophet. And similarly, in the kind of cosmological, meta, you know, metaphysical cosmological uh, cosmology of Sufism, the moon is the lowest level of the, um, the lowest level of the heavenly realm, right beyond which there is no change, beyond which is truth beyond which is the divine, right? Um, the, so the moon, is, to, to become like the moon is to transcend the world of corruption, to transcend our world of change and to, to enter kind of the realm of truth. And so uh, this language is very important you know, when, when we think about it. We, we can't just look at this story as being, oh, uh, this, this guy became a saint and then he stopped being black. 
because blackness is bad. That's that's just a very crass and simplistic reading of a story which is clearly doing much more. The next question I want to ask you um, has to do with, uh, perhaps I will, I will bring together two chapters, uh, two very, very profitable, immensely detailed, complex chapters. Um, so it's kind of an unfair question, but uh, in the interest of time, I was wondering if you could compare your discussion of Maliki discourses on custom and especially on, to be more specific, on kafa'a or suitability of marriage with um, Hanafi legal discussions in South Asia on the question of caste. Uh, there is a very interesting comparison that one can make of those two chapters, of those two sort of intellectual traditions that you examined really thoroughly. If we compare the two, what do we learn about um, this whole, I mean, I guess the whole theme of those two chapters is this tension between the ideal of egalitarianism that you get from the Quran, that, you know, all tribes are only there so that people get to know each other, that, you know, the most closest in God's eyes is the most pious and so on. But on the other hand, there is there are hierarchies and there is, you know, lived realities of hierarchies, there are hierarchies and legal discourses. So that tension between hierarchy and egalitarianism, how could we think about that tension if we compare Maliki law on kafa'a um, and and Hanafi uh, sort of legal discourses on caste in South Asia. Okay, yeah, I mean this is this is uh, yeah, this was a, a for me. I I I just I mean it's obvious I learned a lot from it, but I mean I it was like a a really you know profound exploration for me. I, I felt like I was. Answer. I was sort of delving into questions I had had a lot, uh, I had for a long time, and which I found fascinating. Um, so the, the first part is that you know the kind of entry point into this is that you have these very specific Maliki fiqh texts. For example, Waghlisiya, which is written by a scholar who dies in, in basically in Libya in 1394, I believe. Mukhtasar uh, al-Akhdari in the 1500s from around the same region. And essentially, these texts say things like, um, uh, just for example, you know, uh, it's okay to, you know, you shouldn't look at women you're not related to, you know, because you'll be, you might be tempted, but it's okay to look at a, a black woman or an old woman because they're not attractive, right? Uh, that's one type of thing. You will, then you'll have in Maliki law in North Africa, particularly in places like, you know, from Marrakesh to Fez and into what's today uh, Algeria, you'll have from like the, you know, 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, 1900s, uh, opinions by maybe the majority of Malik jurists that would say things like, if a woman, if you're, you know, you, you agree to marry a woman, she turns out to be black, is that grounds for annulling the marriage? And then the majority opinion would be, yes, it is. Or your is it, uh, grounds to reject a groom that he is black the majority answer would be yes and then you have in the same maliki school not only the opinion of malik who did not consider blackness to be a defect of any sort the founder of the school but in the writings of major maliki scholars like al-qurtubi died 1273 or um uh, Allahumma say to Muhammad, um, um, Sheikh, Sheikh Ahmed Zarruq, I think he died about 12, uh, 1493, if I'm not mistaken. 
from uh, North Africa. They'll say, no, this is, what do you mean? The prophet said, Muslims are equal in their blood. And as you mentioned, Shirley, you know, that the Quran says that the most noble in God's eyes is the most pious and that Arabs have no virtue over non-Arabs except in piety, et cetera, et cetera. Like, we have all this evidence, people. What are you talking about? Like, how can you, how can you say these things? Um, the response of that majority Maliki school, which said things like blackness is a defect in marriage, they'll say, yeah, um, what you're saying is correct. The prophet did say this. The Quran did say this. But, and this is ironic, right? Because usually when, today, when you hear discussions about things like, where people say things like, oh, the Quran needs to be read in its own context. This was dealing with issues of its own time. These are arguments that are made for like, you know, a more quote unquote progressive or liberal reading, right? In this case, the scholars who are saying, who are kind of saying we need to think of blackness as a defect or a fault, they'll say, yeah, the prophet said this, the Quran said this, but this was really to break the back of kind of jahiliyyah and pre-Islamic ignorance and arrogance and tribalism. And that worked and that was for its own time. But now, you know, we have to obey a major maxim of Islamic law, which nobody disputes, which is that word of custom, right? When you don't have any kind of clear evidence from the scriptural text of the Quran and the Sunnah of the Prophet, or clear indications from the, the founders of your school, you defer to local custom, right? And in our societies, being black is seen as unattractive in a woman. And for a man, it's, it suggests you have slave origins and it's considered undesirable. And so um, you have this uh, idea that ironically, the thing today, which everyone wants to advocate for, which is that Muslims should forget about the Quran and just kind of go with custom, uh, in this case, is actually being used to argue for anti-black black view, whereas the people who are calling for, you know, scriptural uh, dictates are true regardless of time and place. These are the people who are arguing against racism. Now, um, what ends up happening, right, it, it's very interesting because you see how custom gets discussed in the Maliki school, right? So, uh, there's a couple of responses to these scholars, this majority that is arguing that we need to respect custom and part of custom is seeing blackness as unattractive or undesirable. Scholars like Ahmed Zarouk will say, Sheikh Ahmed Zarouk is mostly known as a Sufi, but has also wrote legal commentaries, will say things like, look, uh, yeah, you know, you might think that black women are unattractive, but there's also really attractive black women. And you might think older women are unattractive, but there's also really attractive old women. So why don't you just focus on someone's attractiveness and not saying that, you know, this group of people is as a group unattractive or not, right? Similarly, other scholars like Al-Adawi in Egypt in the 1700s, a major uh, scholar, uh, legal legal scholar, will say, um, okay, yes, we're supposed to defer to custom, but custom changes. And just because you writing in North Africa in the 1500s have some weird thing about how you don't find black women attractive, that's not true for other people. Like they might find them very attractive. So um, let's not fossilize your specific custom and make it definitive for uh, everybody. Um, okay, so that's the sort of Maliki approach. And then uh, there was one word uh, kind of... Thing which for me really tied into or made me think about caste in South Asia 
which is something that is a scholar whose death date I have not yet been able to find. And I have looked everywhere I possibly could. A scholar named Abdulaziz bin Ali from the Sous Valley in Morocco. And he has the discussion, which I find fascinating. I think he lived probably in the 1800s. What he says is, if somebody comes and tells you that, you know, doesn't matter. The prophet says everybody's equal. Piety is the only important thing, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, you go marry your daughter to a black guy. Your money where your mouth is. And he tells a story. He says, there was a guy who was very respected. He was wealthy. He was the leader of a, a clan of people. Um, he was pious. Everyone admired him. Uh, he was from, it doesn't say whether he used to be a slave or whether his family used to be slaves. But uh, he, uh, a fam- a noble family agreed to marry their daughter to him. And he says that family, that woman's family, was subjected to abuse for years after that. Years after that. Right? And so what uh, Abdulaziz bin Ali of Sus is asking is, okay, you have these ideals, but what about the social costs? social realities like we're we are muslim jurists we're in charge of guiding people but we also have to deal with social realities and if we're gonna if we're gonna tell someone to follow ideals but that ends up costing their family you know too dearly in terms of trauma or abuse or something have we really done the right thing have we really done the right thing and here you have this question of to what extent could pre-modern states or pre-modern legal systems really engineer society or to what extent were they just in a position to kind of make changes along the edge, the margins. Right. Uh, I think that's a really important question. This got me interested in the question of caste in amongst Muslims in South Asia, because I was thinking about where, what's, what's an example of something where it's a, it's a kind of omnipresent, um, weighty social reality that it's very hard to escape that has mingled with Islamic legal in such a way that you have a significant percentage of Muslim scholars validating this social view, in this case, caste, right? While there's still a minority or at least a vocal group of people saying this is un-Islamic, Yet this social reality is so ubiquitous and has so much power that one has to answer this question of whether or not, even if you fight against it, what is the cost going to be? So that I, I started to think about and to look into the question of caste in amongst Muslims in South Asia, which I thought was really, this was really interesting to me. Um, and, you know, you've written actually about the Shirelli, and I think I cite your book in this this question of things like widow remarriage or, or the remarriage of someone who, who is a divorcee or a widow in among South Asian Muslims and how uh, even pious Muslims like Shah Ismail al-Shahid who you write about that 1831 that it really it really took them a long time and they really hard to, had to get pushed before they would do things like acknowledge that it was good for a, a widow to remarry Right, that where they were able to break away from the, the 
the the kind of domination of South Asian tradition around them and embrace an Islamic ideal. Like even for someone who was committed to that sort of project overall, on those things that were close to them and, and you know close to sort of family and and uh, women folk and stuff, it was tough for them to do. Uh, so I thought that was these were really interesting questions. And what you the reason I I kind of wanted to look at this, I'm tempted to say as like a proxy for questions of anti-blackness, but I don't know if proxy is a good word. It's more kind of a uh, maybe. Um, an illuminating analogy or a, a, a kind of similar case is because we there's a lot more it's a lot more fleshed out by by Muslim scholars in South Asia, and they kind of talk about it in a in a way that gives it more body than the discussion that I had seen amongst Maliki scholars in Northwest Africa around blackness. And uh, so what what you see is uh, again the scholars who validated, let's just to be for simplicity's sake, forms of caste discrimination, who validated these and saw these as Islamically legitimate. They did so, I'm just going to say for the sake of simplicity, if people want to, they can read the book and get more detail on it. But in effect, it's again, um, deference to custom. But deference to custom that they see as prophetically mandated, right? That the Quran and the Sunnah of the Prophet mandate and validate jurists deferring to custom. Then you have, and that's really the majority position. I mean, for a long, and, and people who come out against this, whether it's the scholar Al-Bilgrami who died 15, around 1590, uh, who's talking about widow remarriage, or uh, this guy, Mullah um, Samir ad-Din, with his book, uh, The Full Moon of the Heedless in Bengal in the 1800s, or figures like uh, Maulana Suleiman and Nedwi, he died in 1953, or uh, other figures like this in kind of 20th century and 21st century India and Pakistan. Uh, they, it's really only in the kind of modern period with a kind of revival of an Islamic revival that you have people in the Hanafi tradition in South Asia really taking strong stands against uh, kind of deference to caste uh, and saying things like, you know, Islam ends all this. These are Hindu traditions. We can't accept them, et cetera, et cetera. Now, what, again, the, the people that I found most interesting were not the people who were the sort of staunch defenders of we respect these castes, um, these caste son of sensibilities and they're, they're Islamically legitimate or the people who are saying these are totally Islamically illegitimate. What I was interested in is the people like, uh, to a certain extent, uh, Ashraf Ali Tanvi, I think he died in 1943 from Deoband or Sheikh um, uh, Yunus Janpuri, who I think died just a few years ago, two, 2017. I think he was from Saharanpur, Mazahar Lulum in Saharanpur, if I'm not mistaken. But what I find really interesting about these scholars is they, they acknowledged that the kind of argumentation for the legitimacy of caste sensibility in amongst Muslims was weak. They acknowledged that. Uh, they acknowledged that the most important thing in picking a spouse was that person's piety, right? Um, but at the same time, someone like Yunus Jonpuri talks about what happens when you have 
marriage between castes. He says over and over again, I see these love marriages. People come and it doesn't work out. Your families can't get along, right? Practically speaking, you're, it, it doesn't make marriage an abode of peace and harmony. Marriage becomes a, a place of conflict and tension. And, and so you're, and that, that made me, that for me made me think about um, if you're able to sort of step out of just this language of being racist or not racist, black or, you know, anti-black or, or against anti-blackness, right? That uh, what happens, right? When you have, and, and I, I talked to imams in America, I don't mention them by name in the book, but I, I, I discussed, so they didn't want to, you know, put them on the spot, but, you know, when you have in the U.S. the case, for example, of a Muslim family in Chicago from South Asia, and their daughter marries a black Muslim from Chicago, and those and that couple then goes into the imam's office to do marriage counseling, or even more than that, they go into the imam's office to talk about getting married. And that imam talks about the potential problems they're going to have. To what extent are those discussions or are those problems just about racism? And of course, no one, no one would deny that anti-Black racism is extremely widespread in the world and extremely widespread in the Muslim community and extremely widespread in the Muslim community in America, right? So no one's going to debate that. But is if we just make that, if we just stop the conversation there, we forget that this is also a marriage between two people from very different backgrounds. And that also has a, you know, that if that imam is to say, I recommend you to don't get married, or I caution you against this, or I warn you about the problems you're going to face. Some of those are, those are legitimate concerns, right? These are two people, just like if someone, if you have, you know, two white converts or Muslims, right? And one of them is, you know, from the Kennedy family. And one of them is from a family who's just learned to read and has never been to college or anything like that, right? And has never had any money. There are also going to be problems between this couple. Like that's going to be a challenge for them. So I, I thought, you know, uh, I, I really wanted to explore the idea of how do you like, uh, you have on kind of one end of a spectrum, uh, social concerns about class expectation family background culture language and on the other end of the spectrum you just have pure and simple racism you sort of imagine these two ends of the spectrum filling in towards one another at a certain point there you're going to get like a middle muddy gray area and it's very hard to to navigate that ground and figure out what how one should act and what one's priorities should be Terrific. So as we conclude our conversation, um, Jack, um, could you perhaps take a step back and um, explain or describe for our listeners, what is the sort of larger take-home point that you would want uh, readers to take from this book, conceptually, politically, uh, ethically, etc.? Because this really is a book that straddles all these spheres quite seamlessly. What is the one or two major take-home points that you would want readers to go away with after they read this book? Okay. Yeah. I mean, boy, I could talk for like another hour just about this, but I don't want to, I don't want to probably have stuff to do. I mean, one thing I would say is that what blackness or whiteness or phenotype or color means in history differs tremendously. 
right? Uh, just for an example, like one of the things I did in this book was try to figure out people who, people who live in Africa, South of Sahara, and think of themselves as black or racialized by other people as black, how do they use the word black in their language, right? So in a lot of sub-Saharan African languages, the average speaker of their language would point to their skin and say, my skin is black. They would use the word black. And that would be totally neutral. It would, it would be, it would not be pejorative at all to say that. But then they might also have a phrase in their language like someone is black hearted. You know, a negative pejorative metaphor. But there's no link between blackness as a color descriptor and blackness as a metaphor in their language, right? Whereas in our in English in America today, you know, we have people saying things like, you know, we need to stop things like um, blacklisting or, you know, uh, you know, we, we um, you know, we, we should stop using phrases like blacklist because they're kind of racially inflected. Because for us, race is and kind of blackness and whiteness and language have become so inextricably bound up together with power and privilege and oppression in our society that it just it's it's like a knot that cannot be untangled. Right. But that doesn't mean that's true for other people, for other people. In other societies, they might actually be able to think about color and description and metaphor in completely on completely different tracks. Similarly, just the the last example of this first point I'd make is that oftentimes there's this association, this idea that slavery and Africanness are linked. That when you talk about blackness, you're talking about Africa, but actually, it's probably much more accurate in world history to talk about blackness and slavery being linked without any necessary link to Africa at all. And I'll just give you one example, a medieval Scandinavian poem called the Rigsthula, which was written anywhere from the 1000s to the 1300s, right? Talks about, um, you know, the origin of different social classes in Scandinavia. The first, you know, noble was blonde haired and white, white skin. The first farmer was like reddish and red haired. And the first slave was black and black haired. These people, the slaves in Scandinavian society were Celtic, they were German, they were other Scandinavians, they were Slavic. None of them looked any different from your average Scandinavian person, and none of them were in any way considered black. Same thing, by the way, with Anglo-Saxon texts from like the 900s and 1000s. They'll talk about the black Welsh. The Welsh look just like everybody else in that area, right? So the idea of black blackness and even physical blackness can be imputed to a slave or to a lower other no necessary actual link to how they look or to Africa. This is very important. I think another important point I'd make to make, which is we really need to think that other people and other times in the world, the relationship between blackness as a descriptor of color, blackness as a metaphor, blackness as linked to slavery are totally different from our own experience. The second thing I would, the point I would make is um, that uh yeah, I mean, I would just say that yeah, that the Islamic tradition is heir to a tradition of anti-Black racism, which comes from the Greco-Roman tradition, which comes from the biblical tradition. Muslims adopt that. But that very prominent voices within that tradition, whether it's in law, in geography, in scripture, in commentary, in Sufism, et cetera, et cetera, very prominent voices throughout the centuries reject this and really push the idea that for Muslims, 
the only thing that matters that determines your value is your faith and your deeds. The last point I would make, and the kind of maybe most like political point I would make is, you know, what to do about it. And in, it was very interesting because I, oh, you know, I consider myself kind of a, maybe like classical liberal, uh, you know, I don't, I think people should be free to make choices unless they're, you know, dem demonstrably harming other people. Um, and I, and I, and if, if, if one of the things I talk about in the last chapter of the book is this idea of when can discrimination be legitimate? Like, so when, if you're dating or you're talking about your romantic life or who are you attracted to, when is your discrimination in your own taste legitimate or not? So if someone says, I'm not attracted to black men or I'm not attracted to black women, is that a racist thing or is that just that person's opinion? And let's say it is a racist thing. How do you change that? How do you change what someone's attracted to? So I discussed this at length and different theories about it. But uh, what I what I thought was really interesting is as, as I was doing the research for this, I, I came across a dissertation written by a, a British, a black British philosopher named uh, Nathaniel Adams Tobias Coleman. And his dissertation was called a duty, The Duty to Miscegenate. And I started to read it and I, I really said, you know, I don't agree with this. I'm a liberal. I don't like this idea of kind of the idea that we should be, we have some kind of duty to blend. And by the time I finished reading the dissertation, I was really convinced by his arguments. Um, and he doesn't, he doesn't, he's not so crude as to say that we have like a moral obligation to go and, you know, copulate with people of other races. But what he says is that, the you know we the majority the kind of white majority of a society like the uk or the united states we have an obligation to seek the society and he takes this phrase from john stuart mill seek the society of those racialized as black those racialized as the as the people those placed at the bottom of our social ladder right we have a, an obligation to seek their society because only by purposefully and like with a commitment to intermingle with those people and to become familiar with them that you can you can undo this uh rate racial dynamic the, the racial power dynamic of our societies and then i i, I really thought about the work muhammad had tried to do in his life um and i i don't want to to, to mix up sort of um uh to equate the prophet's edicts with like what a modern state would do, because I think, you know, in a kind of Halakian sense, the modern state is very, uh, it's a different species. You can't sort of think about um, what the the prophet with his very limited capacities to police and implement rules in a pre-modern state. Uh, you can't think of that as sort of analogous to a modern state. But what he tried to do was he, he arranged marriages for certain prominent people he said, you, you noble Arab woman are going to marry this black former slave. You noble Arab woman are you going to marry this Persian former slave, right? He, en he engineered these marriages with people who he knew could cope with it in order to, to uh, show a model for, for how to proceed as Muslims. So that's kind of where I end the book is saying that, you know, they, the, one of the idols of our world is the idol of whiteness. And white and white phenotype, white standards of beauty, and that we have to sm smash this idol. We have to s people suffer for this idol. They 
change their bodies. They hate the way they look. They straighten their hair. They get their eyelids operated on, right? We, we need to smash this idol. And the way, to, we, the way to do that is to build, to seek out the society of others and to, to cross the racial and kind of communal ethnic divides that divide, um, let's say, the Muslim community in America, uh, South Asian or Arab immigrants on one hand and African-American Muslims on the other. They need to see the, the, the people who are powerful and rich and have privilege in, those, in that dynamic have to seek out the society of those who don't. Islam and Blackness by Professor Jonathan Brown, published by One World Press in 2022. Uh, thank you so much, Jack, for the generosity of your time and for your extensive and really brilliant answers to these difficult questions because it's very hard to summarize these intensely complicated and uh, layered uh, chapters of this book. And thanks so much for writing this book that uh, is bound to spark some excellent conversations, debates in multiple fields and even outside academia for that matter. Um, and the accessibility of this text um, really competes fiercely with its complexity. Thank you so much for coming again on New Books Network, uh, and thank you for your time. Shir Ali, I am, it, is, it is I who thank you, and I'm very honored. Thank you. So this was my conversation with Professor Jonathan Brown about his wonderful new book, Islam and Blackness. I hope you enjoyed this episode of your favorite podcast, New Books and Islamic Studies. That is NBIS, which operates online through the New Books Network, which is NBN. I hope you will join us next time for another fresh episode of uh, New Books and Islamic Studies. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care, stay well, and keep listening to New Books and Islamic Studies.